Welcome to another episode of the Getting the Deal Done podcast. My special guest today is attorney Danya Shakfe. She specializes in buy-sell deals and franchises. Welcome, Danya. Hi, John. Thank you for having me. So you're an attorney. You specialize in small business, buy-sell. Uh, why don't we start with just when you a seller has a business, they want to make it more attractive to a buyer, and you've worked with a lot of buyers, what should they do to make it smoother and more attractive and get to a deal? So that's a great question. Um, so I think first and foremost, sellers should ask that question before putting their business on the market um, for sale, um, because sometimes they just like throw it up, um, or excuse me, like they throw their on like business for sale and not even ask them what will make it attractive. So, um, but to answer that question, but for um, one thing that's overlooked is um, having clear processes, procedures, um, handbooks, um, and basically to make the business more like a machine so that it, when it's transferred to a seller, it, or, or excuse me, like when the seller transfers the business to the buyer, the buyer can more easily transition into the business because it runs like a machine. You don't need the seller. You don't need specific employees um, to continue the business um, uh, after the seller leaves. And the way to do that, um, especially nowadays, um, uh, like a lot of sellers should be looking into automation. Um, so for example, a seller could use automation to streamline their sales processes and to make it easier to acquire clients. So as a buyer, that's a more attractive type of business where the seller has a streamlined process, um, to acquire those clients. Yeah. Well, what you just mentioned is one of my top, uh, handful of, of things that sellers should do. And it, we call it an owner dependency. And, yeah. Uh, and yeah. I, and um, I like to say the owner who goes to their country club or uh, restaurant with their buddies and s tells them how important they are to the business. All of a sudden, when they're selling it, they're telling everyone, oh, I don't do anything important. I, yeah. I'm useless. So uh, owner dependency. I like that one. term, owner dependency. Yeah. I always ask people, are you selling a business or are you selling a job? Because if you're selling a job, buyer will go get a job. <laughs> right. But yeah, yeah. that's a well, nice term. Risk, right. So it, when you, when there's going to be a match between a buyer and a seller and the buyer has to make an offer and whether you're on the buy side or the sell side, what makes a good letter of intent or what makes a bad letter of intent might be a better way to say it. <laughs> a bad letter of intent. Okay. Um, so first and foremost, Okay, bad letter of intent. First of all, if they don't talk about like whether it's a stock sale or an asset sale, like, oh, they're just buying the business and they're not clear about what type of deal it is. Because once you're on the buy side, you want to know going in if it's going to be an asset sale or a stock sale. Because first of all, you want to know what you're buying. And then two, it's going to dictate how you do, how the buyer is going to do their due diligence. I'm going to ask or, or, or like different questions um, if it's a stock or an asset sale. Um, obviously like, you know, the purchase price, sometimes I've even seen LOIs without purchase prices and that can always be negotiated, but, you know, going in with an, you know, you know, a ballpark is always good. I mean, it's helpful too. Um, I also don't like LOIs that are too restrictive or almost binding. And I would say this for both sides, you know, I mean, 
because LOI isn't meant to be binding. And if it becomes binding, um, then it can create a lot of problems as the parties try to negotiate. Um, and also it's just too restrictive um, and it becomes stressful. Um, another thing that I often see lacking in LOIs are the deal breakers. If So like if you're on the buy or the sell side, you want to be transparent upfront about what you know is going to kill the deal if you know that information already. Because what happens is that people will, will go or, or, or like they'll start negotiating. And then like, for example, a seller will say, well, I really want to keep this particular asset. And the seller knew that going in, but they didn't say anything. And then the buyer is like, has has already invested in due diligence and a lawyer. And they're like, wait a minute, I really want to buy that asset. And it just becomes difficult. So I like to have those conversations with my clients up front, like what are your deal breakers? Okay. So what, when you, you mentioned, uh, you know, we get into due diligence, tell me about the due diligence process you do with your clients when you're on the buyer side. Um. So most of my deals are, asset deals. So we focus, of course, first and, first and, form, first and foremost, the financials. So even though I'm not the accountant and, and I'm not the numbers person, asking for more detailed um, profit and loss statements, budget reports, um, and projections, um, a lot of the times buyers don't ask for that, have not asked for that already. Like all they've really asked for are like tax returns or like sales summaries. Um, and so, and then also any contracts that are involved, we really want to know um, how how the seller's business makes money and the kind of relationships um, the seller depends on to make money. Um, and also any contracts that may require a third-party consent to make sure that the deal action was through. So is there a lease involved? Is there a franchise involved um, that we need to get their permission to move this deal? So those are just some of the things. And also if there's any licenses that are required. So those are some of the things I you know think of off the top of my head. If you're talking about a stock sale, we want to know more about potential lawsuits and liabilities because now the buyer is actually buying those liabilities as well, like the history of the company. Interesting point you raised about the uh, consents from others. Uh, uh, just got done with a, a client on a deal where every customer of the business had to approve the new contract. Uh, How did that go? Buyer. Uh, it dragged out. It took a long time. Yeah. We delayed it by over a month. But you mentioned lease. Lease is mm -hmm. really important. And I feel it often gets shoved to the background. And I, over the last two years, I've seen three, three deals that we've had some connection with not go anywhere because of the landlord. Mm, yeah. So, you know, you're an attorney, so you deal with leases all the time. Um, mm -hmm. talk about lease, leases and just handling them during the buy-sell process and what That's the a great bank wants. We know what banks generally want. The yeah, so, covered. so um, I was speaking recently to, oh, I think it was a commercial real estate broker, and he was saying that he now sees a trend where there are terms in the lease where the um, – now the lender actually needs to approve or be part of this process for the lease to transfer to a new party. So first thing you want to see is who do we need to get involved? What applications need to start very early on? Because those take time and they're pending. So if you know a lender needs to be involved, 
like we asked them up front. So like, you know, on the eve of the closing, it's like, wait a minute. Oh my God, we have to ask the lender um, if they approve the transfer of the lease. Um, and then also, I've also seen where, yeah, the, the seller or excuse me, the buyer has not um, timely done their application to be a tenant. So I like to start those very early on and have them run in the background while everything else is being negotiated. So everything is, you know, ready for closing on schedule. So what do you do with the seller says, I don't want the landlord to know at this time? Well, I would tell them that you're going to risk, you know, delaying the process and, you know, it's their choice. Um, I, uh, but can only advise my clients on what to do and the risks, but I can't tell them actually what to do. So I would maybe, you know, nudge them in that direction. But ultimately, if they know the risk, then that's, you know, I think that's really all I can do. Mm -hmm. And what other areas do you see uh, slowing up the process uh, besides the consents like leases and customer contracts? Um, so actually going back to the financials, I see a lot, um, because, uh, a seller will, will swear up and down that they have all this profit and amazing business. Like you said, it's like, you know, the seller wants to, you know, <laughs> like really talk up their business before they sell it. And, and all of a sudden things start to change. Um, and so we had this deal actually where it, it was a car wash and, um, they didn't have any P and L's like none. And, and, and they said they sent it. And so, and so my buyer, this is the first time that they've run a business or that they bought a business. So they didn't really know what to look for in terms of financials. All I got was an email, um, with a list of like these, like, or, or like with a few expenses, like maybe five expenses. And I asked the buyer, I was like, where's water on this list? This is a car wash. <laughs> I don't see anything about water. Um, and so that actually, ultimately that, that deal actually fell through. Um, for that very reason. But, you know, part of the delay was just not having their documents in place, you know, or I can't find this contract. So it, it, I mean, it's not a really sexy answer. It's just have your stuff in order before you start trying to sell your business. Yeah. And uh, do you help? Would you help an owner if they came to you and says, look, I want to sell my business, help me get things in order for a buyer? Do you do work in that area? I'm not talking about process improvement or right. you know, being a CFO, but just from, from your perspective. Um, I wish I had, I wish my clients came to me. So um, I would, if they did. So basically what I tell my potential sellers is here is a, a common due, due diligence checklist. This is the stuff that you're going to be asked for when you start negotiating the sale of your business, have this stuff now and get it ready so that you're prepared and it will streamline the business. So, um, and then I also often work with, or sometimes just refer them, you know, depending on the situation to a business broker like yourself, that um, because they are more experienced in doing the actual sale of the business and often uh, interacting with potential buyers before the lawyers get involved, having that input is also very valuable for the seller prior to actually starting the offer process. Yeah, I, I think they're, you get a lot of agreement that in people in the buy, sell M&A industry that uh, owners should take time to get it ready before just flipping the switch and saying, I want out. Yeah. Um, Wall Street Journal many years, years ago. Year. Yeah. What was that? No, I'm sorry. I, and and that process sometimes may take two or three years, um, like to really properly prepare your business for sale. It's not something overnight um, necessarily, you know, depending on the size of the business, but. Oh yeah, because you don't you don't you don't change things right away and just you, 
because employees are used to doing things a certain way. Customers are used to things a certain way. And that's what we're talking about is why the Wall Street Journal, because it goes back about 15 years now, but said 90% of businesses are not prepared to sell for maximum value. That sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. What other, uh, what other tips would you have from a legal perspective for buyers and sellers? Um, from a legal perspective, um, one thing that often gets overlooked is uh, tax liability, specifically the taxes and liens that could attach to assets. Um, so a book sales notice. Um, I'm not sure if it's um, looks like if it has a different name in California, or but here it's um, you know like in the state of Illinois, and sometimes different counties have their own. Like you actually have to provide a like you have to provide a notice of the sale to the Department of Revenue saying, hey, like the assets of this business are going to transfer. Are there any outstanding taxes? Um, and that could be payroll taxes or um, sales taxes. Um, and so and then the Department of Revenue will do you know their inspection and see if there's any taxes owed, and they will often do like a holdback and say to hold a certain purchase price amount in escrow until or those taxes are paid off. Um, and so what often happens if that's proce- that process is not done and the buyer buys those assets, even an asset sale, like they're still responsible for those taxes because now the taxes are attached to the assets. Um, and so they might find themselves, you know, receiving a notice of a lien and being responsible for those taxes. And that's something that's really overlooked uh, by a lot of buyers because they think, oh, if this is an asset sale. I'm not buying the stock of the company. So I'm not, so liability is not being transferred to me. But you know, when it comes to taxes, transfers to everybody, no one's immune. Right. Yeah, they, it transcends yeah. any transaction. I learned that a long time ago. And uh, yeah, you're right. Buyers think, well, it's an asset sale. I don't have to worry about anything. There's a firewall, but the firewall is... <laughs> The yeah. heat of taxes gets through the firewall. Yeah, the government will always find a way to collect their money. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, let's uh, let's finish up. Uh, you also said, you know, I don't really work with franchises, but what do mm-hmm. you do for someone that's buying or selling a franchise? Is, is there anything different when than an independent business? Yeah. So that's a great question. the The franchisor will typically want to vet the new franchisee because it's not now just a buyer it's a new franchisee who's going to be who is going to be uh stepping in the shoes of the franchise um and so there's usually um a transfer fee that someone has to pay um and it's usually around like five thousand dollars to cover the uh legal fees of the franchisor to actually vet the franchisee and you want to have their consent um, and the franchisor also wants to um, has to provide their required disclosures to the new franchisee. Um, and so that process could take a while. Um, and so having that consent um, early on as well is also very important. I've seen in a few situations, unfortunately, where it's completely ignored. And sometimes I think the seller doesn't realize they're in a franchise. Um, I know that sounds weird, but they don't think of it as that relationship. And so they transfer. I mean, I see this or I saw this really, um, it was a like a food route where, or, or, or like a trucking food route where um, the franchisor sells certain territories of like, of, um, uh, of 
processing like different foods to different areas. So it was a smaller deal. Um, and so the seller was like, yeah, I'll just transfer my routes. But I was like, no, no, you're not transferring a route. You're transferring a franchise. And so the buyer is going to spend, even if it's 30, 40 K, which might not be too much money for, you know, in M and a world, they have zero authority to actually do anything because the franchisor has not authorized this new franchisee. Yeah. And you said, and I've seen that too with uh, license agreements uh, yeah. that really aren't, they're not a franchise, but they still, there's still control over who can, who can uh, take it over. So that's, so that's another thing is that actually those are often still actually franchises. It's just usually that, that, that uh, license agreement, uh, the person who is doing the licensing, sorry, like the licensor is actually operating a franchise and they haven't done the right work to properly be yeah. a franchise. <laughs> well, so, the franchise is very expensive. I know from personal experience. Yeah. And, yes, uh, it is. Yeah. A lot of money to create a franchise. And yes, they do a life agreement. Okay. And of course they use, the, everyone uses the same name and has the same. Yeah. Now that it is a franchise by another name. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Just got to be careful on the buy side too, or on the sell side too, that you're not violating any laws in that process. And it could also hurt your deal too. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you have, let us have, have any final thoughts and then how to contact you. Um. So yeah, just, I would say, look, just, just, I know people don't like to spend money on lawyers, Um. but you know, take the time to get good counsel and get it done right. So that because people buy businesses ultimately to, to have a better life and you're not going to have a better life if you cheap it on yourself by either not hiring a lawyer or not hiring an experienced lawyer, like to help with this process, do it right. And then have a successful business. And so those are my parting thoughts. Um, and the best way to contact me is to call my office at 630-517-5529 or to email me at dania at motivalaw.com. Can you spell that? Uh, the... D-A-N-Y-A at uh, M-O-T-I-V as in Victor, A-Law.com. Okay, thank you. And uh, I think what you said about having a good lawyer applies to the whole team, whether it's a banker, the accountant, someone in my position. And I will close by saying I'm these days tell buyers you probably want to get an HR professional to look at things mm -hmm. because there are so many, uh, we'll just say minutia, mm -hmm. in what goes on with HR. And let's face it, most small businesses don't keep up on that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we could have a whole other conversation about <laughs> a team. I think that's a separate podcast. <laughs> All right, Daniel. Right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And Thank you for having this, me again. This is, uh, this is Dania Shekva in, in Chicago, a buy-sell attorney, and this is the Getting the Deal Done podcast series.